This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. Now, Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you this morning already for the gathering of the saints. We thank you, Lord, that in the unity of the believers there is, uh, Lord, a wonderful liberty present. And so we praise you for this this morning. We ask you, Father, that you would continue to minister through this morning. Bless us through your word, in the power of your spirit. Amen. So, you know, it's easy to think that when you see God do amazing things that everybody would be excited, and, um, you know, excited about what's happened and what's happening, etc., etc., but it's not always the case. And you can see them talking there in verse Uh, 27, that they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Wonderful report that they're bringing to the churches. Let's go over to chapter 15. And you know there's going to be a difference because it starts with but. But certain ones came down from Judea taught the brothers, saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, dissension and not a little disputation occurring by Paul and Barnabas, uh, they appointed us, um, uh, Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So let's just consider, first of all, the far reach of the Pharisees because it is so typical in this kind of situation. The church is growing and uh, Paul and Barnabas and their team are travelling and they're ministering from church to church and developing those churches and then they come to this place in Antioch and they stay there for a while Uh, ministering and helping the disciples in that area. But it is typical of the old guard to come in and say things when when there is change afoot, uh, or when uh, something is happening that they're not happy with. You know, and so they're they're like, "Mm, by George chaps, you, you, you can't preach that kind of message, we've always held to circumcision. And so, you know, legalism is a very, very subtle thing many times. It has subtle strengths to it in that it doesn't always come out with a thing like circumcision, such a, a an obvious issue that we know uh, covenantally in scripture that God has not placed the Gentiles under that covenant and we know that now looking back at scripture. But legalism is often couched in more sinister aspects of behaviour and and so we'll, we'll have a look at a couple of those in a moment's time. And so here were the legalists, they were doing their thing and you know they, they were opposing this move of God that was taking place. You need to understand that legalists do not always act 
out of an oppositional kind of view, that they're just trying to resist something. Most times, in my experience with people who are, who are caught up into some form of legalism, most times it's because they are sincerely wanting to do the right thing. And, and they believe that their faith and practices are the, the, path, the correct pathway for people to follow. Now, legalism says, in essence, if we boil it down, and I mentioned just a couple of weeks ago that there's a basic mathematical formula, faith plus works equals salvation. Another way of saying, is that, saying it is that by my achievements added to faith, I will be made right with God. The Mormons say that um, uh, I do my best, Jesus makes up the rest. And that's nothing but a legalistic formula just put into a, a, a pithy little phrase. And I, I think in many ways there are two forms of legalism. The legalism of our text, which is very specific. It is faith plus a prescribed, biblically prescribed legal action equals salvation. So in this case, these Judaizers who had gone forth and were preaching around the churches and here were opposing Paul and Barnabas and they were saying it is faith plus circumcision, this special act. And so, you know, there's a number of things that, that is wrong with this, uh, even their approach to this issue in the church is because by their very approach of this one particular issue, they're excluding the females of the congregation from this message. Ephesians 2, Paul would later, and it's not until some time later that he would write to the Ephesian church on the same subject. And I would really encourage you to read through chapter 2 and study it out. But he comes down to verses 8 and 9 and he says, For by grace are ye saved through faith. It's, it's a very precise statement that Paul makes. It is by the grace of God that you are saved through the channel of faith. And then he says, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The danger of this form of legalism coming into the church is that it has the uh, power to affect the future message of the church. When it comes to the strategies that Satan employs, he wants to corrupt the church. That is his desire, that he would corrupt the church. And the way to do that primarily, and, and the way to do that that has an ongoing effect in the church, is to do that at the core of theology, to corrupt the theology of the church, because then those teachings will lead to a corruption of the people's worship and a corruption of their service for God. This is the resounding teachings of Matthew 13 and the kingdom parables and you should do some study on that as well because the one of the issues of the kingdom parables is that uh, 
there is the enemy has a a toxic intention of infiltrating the church with corrupt uh, with corruption and that cor- corruption residing in the church. And so he talks about the birds of the air, you know, and he says, when Jesus explains the parables, he says that the birds of the air, that's the enemy. And so he identifies the birds of the air. And, you know, so he talks in one of the parables about the birds nesting in the tree. And the tree is that thing which has grown out of the seed of gospel truth. And so it's, it's a picture of the church and that it grows large. Uh, in God's garden. It grows to be a large thing, but birds of the air nest in it. It's so large, they're able to nest inside this tree. And so he's talking about the the intention and the ability of the enemy to hide himself and couch himself within the very framework of the church and from that point be able to corrupt the church. He's not not working on the outside, knocking on the door, so to speak, trying to get in, but the intention is to be couched within and one of the uh, ways in which that can be done very powerfully is to corrupt the teaching of the church. And so if he cannot affect the church's walk with God, can't affect their, let's say for example, the the worship is good and the the teachings are solid and these kinds of things, but he'll try and affect the message that's coming out. He'll try and affect these kinds of things in some way, getting a wedge in the door and try to influence things Along the way, and we saw this powerfully in the in the 90s and the early uh, noughties, as they as they call it, the early part of this century, where churches were embracing these weird and bizarre doctrines coming out of uh, Toronto and out of Pensacola in Florida, uh, and I- I embracing these things, and now out of that uh, that other whacked out church, the one with the music, um, Bethel. Bethel Church. You know, that people are embracing these things that come out of those church so wholeheartedly because there is the image of, of growth and dynamism that comes from these churches. And so because of that, people think, therefore, it must be God because look at how that church is flourishing and look how dynamic it is and look at how many young people they're reaching. All of those things are irrelevant to the the move and the work and the hand of God if they are apart from that foundation of truth. Acts 15 verse 1 says, And the men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses. So they've they've come down and they're teaching the brethren. They've got into the church. This is a largely Gentile church. And so they're influencing this church of Gentiles, people who've been involved in pagan worship and now have been introduced to the Christian gospel message and they're coming in and saying, that's awesome. Now add to that this. And so this is what the and how the nature of false doctrine works is that it comes alongside true teachings and it destabilizes people people's basic faith and their confidence and their their uh, uh, assurance that they have in Christ Jesus through faith by adding in these interesting sounding teachings. 
Why were Paul and Barnabas wanting to debate this in the church? Why did they want to take this on in the church? And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with him. I mean, the church is supposed to be a place of love, peace and happy juice, isn't it? Where we just, you know, greet each other with a brotherly kiss and we, you know, give each other a high five for having a great week and making it to this Sunday, you know, and, and uh, you know, having, uh, whatever, you know. Isn't the church supposed to be that kind of environment? Well, here are two brothers, Paul and Barnabas, whose name means the son of consolation or a son of encouragement, who took no small dissension with these false teachers. They were ready for a confrontation with them and it became heated. See, the church had begun through the preaching of salvation through faith and was now being corrupted and Paul and Barnabas were not going to stand for that. They were not going to let that continue without waging a war over this issue. Now, I'd love to go through Ephesians 2 with you, but we don't really have the time right now. And But I, I would encourage you to work through that, um, you know, Ephesians 2, trying to put it in context, do a little bit of work of your own about trying to understand the context of the passage and start with a piece of butcher's paper next to your Bible and start diagramming the passage out to yourself about all the illustrations that Paul uses in there as he talks about salvation. And it will really bless you to do that. But when you come down to Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and 10, the, the issue that sometimes people get sidetracked on there is that for by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. People take the the way it appears in the grammar in English and that faith not of yourselves and they misplace the emphasis of the word that onto being talking about faith that in other words faith doesn't come from yourself and it's incorrect because it relates back to the passage before and, it, and as Paul talks about a couple of times through chapter 2 of Ephesians about the issue of salvation. And he's really highlighting that grace leading unto salvation is not of yourself. And even the issue of faith, we could contend to some degree it's not of yourself because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is tied specifically to the gospel message. But still, the issue of your response of faith is part of the gospel message itself. And so uh, some people through have used this verse to try and uh, endorse a teaching of God giving you the faith to believe. And, and I don't want to get into that because you can see where it heads to. Um, but it is something worth uh, studying out for yourself. The issue with Paul and Barnabas here is that if they had not contended for this matter, this church was in danger of being derailed into a salvation by works message. And those people who had been saved purely by the grace of God through faith, their message will be changed. 
So the next generation who come along, this is where the danger of false doctrine is. Let's say, for example, God blessed you and you heard the salvation message in a clear and simple gospel presentation and and you were convicted of your sins and you placed a simple saving faith in Jesus Christ. And then along comes someone in your new convert stage and they begin to teach you about salvation, uh, faith plus works, salvation, and you cling to that because in actual fact it appeals very much to the flesh and so because it gives us some sense of self-righteousness and this is why it appeals to us but you cling to that the simplicity of your salvation by faith now is being robbed but especially in the message that comes forth in your life from that time on and this is I believe the real stirring influence in Paul's life regarding this issue is that he was not about to sit down and let this ongoing future message be warped by this doctrine of faith plus works. Well, there's another form of legalism that I know a lot of us here have experienced, and that is a a more subtle form of legalism that is that your faith is proven by your adherence to all kinds of denominational rules. Um, you know, an organisation we were in, uh, if you were in, you know, they said, oh, these weren't salvation issues, but, man, they sounded like them a lot of times when you were in discussions. Things like not having a television, not going to cinemas, Um, Some groups, the exclusive brethren, are famous for things like uh, ladies not being allowed to have earrings uh, or that they must wear long skirts and and tops that fully cover their arms and wear a a bonnet, a scarf or a shawl of some kind over their head to church. Uh, These kinds of things. Now, the, the problem becomes... Not so much whether you have a conviction in your home. Let's say, for example, that that you're not going to have a television in your home. Praise God. Praise God if that is a conviction that you have and you're going to do that. The problem becomes when a church or an organization takes a standard like that and uses it as some kind of gauge to measure a person's spirituality. And, And this often happens People, you know, that's why we've de-emphasized in our church the way that we dress. And we don't want to go, you know, quite as far as California beach kind of look, you know, safari kind of, you know, the flowery Hawaiian tops and pair of flip-flops and stuff like that. But can a person come along to our church and worship God dressed like that? Yes, amen. Yes, they can. And we'll praise God for that person being here with us, in fellowship with us, because that's the important thing. When organizations and groups place a lot of emphasis on the external, what ends up happening is a superficial religious behavior begins to surface. And that's how people's spirituality begins to be judged, is by people's performance. Oh, yeah, he's doing really well. He's, he got rid of his television. You know, he's doing really well. He's wearing a suit and tie and carries a briefcase. You know, all these kinds of things that, that go into the external of how a person looks and, and that somehow that becomes a gauge of a person's spirituality. 
and it becomes confusing. The reason it becomes confusing is because when we're out evangelizing, what do we preach? Salvation by grace through faith. We preach that message. And then when we go to church, we place this emphasis on performance and appearance and and adherence to certain kinds of rules and regulations. And all of a sudden, the message we preach is conflicting with the way in which we're actually living. And this is one of the terrible tragedies of legalism, whether it's that denominational, organizational legalism, or whether it's a straight legalistic message like circumcision, for example, is that it conflicts with the message of salvation by grace through faith. And that's the message we need to get through. We need that message to get through to people. And Paul and Barnabas were not allowed to, uh, not about to let the work that God was doing in this region be be run down and, and destroyed by these legalists. And I love the fact that Scripture does not nancy around with this issue, but it says that these people came in teaching and Paul and Barnabas withstood them that they disputed with them and not a small dissension is what the scripture says. It wasn't a small fight. It was an issue and they weren't backing down. And so finally when it became such an aggrieved uh, situation, a decision was made. Verse 3 says, And indeed, being set forth by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the nations, and they caused great joy to all the brothers. And arriving in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and by the apostles and elders. We mentioned the elders before, and uh, you know, or the, the leadership before. And they declared all things that God had done with them. But some of those from the sect of the Pharisees, having believed, rose up, saying it was necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So let's have a look at the how the church here, how they responded to this situation by taking it to people that they could get advice and leadership from. And this needs to be a pattern for the New Testament church. There are many different forms of church government, but the simplicity of this is that the body of Christ has within it to, in some functions, layers of what could be called government. And those layers of government are not there to overlord over the people, but instead are there to lift up the saints in service. And so we we call them a, a, a headship or a governance of the church, but their real position is to govern by serving. And... In the case of elders, theirs is the spiritual oversight of the church. And then we read of Paul in Timothy talking about elders and deacons. And deacons are an administrative function within the church. And this is an area uh, which, as Chris was saying, we, we laboured to some length to try and get these things sorted within our church and, and really struggled with them. Um, and, you know, it was, it was quite humorous in some ways looking back and seeing how far we came and, you know, just being a metre short of the finish line, but it, we really struggled with some issues uh, there. But Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem, and in fact they were appointed by the body of the people to go to Jerusalem and represent them on this issue and speak with the elders and the leaders at Jerusalem. 
You know, one of the things this shows us, and, and you can see this as you read through the book of Acts and you read through Paul's letters, is that the church is not perfect. I don't know if you've noticed that, you know. We're not, we're not perfect. We've got some issues. And even in a small church, it's not perfect. And a larger church is, to the same degree, imperfect as well. The church is never going to be perfect this side of eternity. And we see that in this text. But this imperfection that was in the church was grasped onto by the congregation and the leaders as an opportunity to sort something out. And the apostles and the elders were assembled to see about this matter, verse 6 says, and after much disputing... So here it comes even in amongst them. Why was this disputing happening? Well, it says that there were some who were saved out of the sect of the Pharisees who had become believers, but they were still clinging on to their religious traditions, still clinging on to this legalism. And so they were holding on to this matter of circumcision and seeing it as being an important issue. After much disputing, Peter rose up and said to them, Men... Brothers, you recognize that from ancient days God chose among us that through my mouth the nation should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And after much, uh, uh, and believe, in verse 8, and God who knows the hearts bore them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as to us. So Peter draws on the experience that he had of preaching to Gentiles who had believed. And that was the simplicity of their conversion experience that they had believed. And in praying for these ones, they received the Holy Spirit with an evidence that he was able to know for sure that they were, had been filled with the Holy Spirit like the Jews in Jerusalem had on the day of Pentecost. And from that, the, this revelation was confirmed to him that God had been dealing with him about through the vision that he'd had of the animals being lowered down and God saying, take and eat, and him saying, oh, I couldn't, Lord, uh, touch the unclean thing, and, and God teaching him that, don't call unclean what I've cleansed. And so now he's preaching to the council at Jerusalem, and he's saying, listen, remember that this is what happened. This is what happened. God gave the Holy Spirit into the lives of these Gentiles who were saved in the same way as us, by faith in Jesus. And this is a powerful argument because it undermines the whole argument of the legalists. And and I, I love Peter for this, you know, Paul who comes in with all of his intellectual pursuit and, and his ability to reason why legalism is wrong and all this kind of stuff. And Peter comes in and he says, hey, listen, you know God called me to go to the Gentiles. I preached to them and they got saved, filled with the Holy Spirit in the same way that we did. God is saving Gentiles through faith not through legalism. That's what he said. Verse 9, And he put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you tempt God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, Gentile disciples he's speaking of, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? We could not 
accomplish or achieve salvation by law-keeping? Never anyone has. Never anyone will. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, according to which manner they also believed. And all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had worked among the nations through them. That's a good bit of preaching, isn't it? Peter summarizes a few things. Look at verse 9. He put no difference between us and them. He's speaking to a council of elders with Pharisees who who had become believers in the Messiah Jesus but were still caught in their legalism. These are people who were steeped in prejudice. That is their cultural history of prejudice toward the surrounding nations. Why? Because God has chosen us. He has set us apart from everybody else. You know, this ran down through their culture all the way through. And Peter, he makes the point to them, God has put no difference between us and them. Purifying their hearts by faith. That's the key issue. There's what he says next that seems to be the real clarity for this occasion. Now, therefore, why do you tempt God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, a yoke which neither our forefathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. By grace you are saved through faith, according to which manner they also believed. It's interesting that Peter would go and hit at this issue of the yoke on the neck of the the disciples. In my experience, and I, I know that there are some others here that have been involved in our old fellowship that we came out of, um, you know, for Suzanne and I in 2002, we resigned from that organisation and one of the things that led to resigning was seeing how much of a burden the young people who came in and got saved were being put under. And we raised that with the leaders uh, time and again um, to no avail. And so, you know, we ended up being asked to resign and, and so we did. And it was the grace of God to be to be quite frank about that. But that was one of the things that became hard to watch and, you know, out evangelizing on the street and wanting to share the gospel. But, but you know, we're, we're pioneering a church in Frankston and wondering whether we should point the people we're witnessing to to our own church or to another church just in case we were removed from ministry and someone took over and, and that legalism would be enforced uh, more strongly in our church. A terrible thing to live under. It becomes a yoke that kind of thing. But to see the the confusion, you see, when I got saved, there were very clear teachings about salvation by grace through faith. The church spent a lot of time teaching these things. And it, there was a shift in that through the mid-90s 
within the denomination and, uh, and that shift started to place more and more emphasis on performance by people and adherence to codes and standards and these kinds of things. And, and so that became a real conflict for me because I could see what I was saved, the message I was saved through, and see what was happening now. Galatians 5, Paul says, and this became a, a comfort and a challenge to me, this verse. Verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled with the yoke of bondage. You see, Peter highlights legalism as a yoke of bondage. Paul explains to us that legalism is fleshliness. That if you and I think that somehow we can sanctify ourselves to a place of righteousness with God for salvation, that we're grossly mistaken. We are, our good works are to come out of the salvation. For we are his workmanship, firstly, in Christ Jesus created for good works, that we should glorify God with them. And so Paul writes that, that you and I, we've been saved to live in liberty in Christ Jesus, so don't be entangled with the yoke of bondage. That yoke of bondage can be sinfulness, and that yoke of bondage can be legalism, which is what Paul deals with principally through the book of Galatians. This is a revelation. The yoke can exist in many forms today. Some churches teach baptismal regeneration. You're not saved until you're baptized. A bit tough for the thief on the cross next to Jesus. You know, speaking in tongues to be saved. That unless you speak in tongues, you're you're not born again. Um, uh, some churches demand that that even if you have, you know individually placed your faith in Jesus Christ because of some reason. Let's say, for example, you picked up a, a tract on the ground somewhere, you read it, and you were converted. That if you then go and find a church, they demand that you say the sinner's prayer with them, and then you're saved. That's We're only talking about the salvation doctrine here. Uh, I know a man who pastors a church that teaches that... Um, uh, a doctrine called alien baptism, which has nothing to do with aliens. It means that if you got baptised at our church but started attending their church, they don't count the baptism at our church because, you know, it doesn't matter. And so, you know, if, it's a bizarre thing. But anyway, let's not get into it. James says in James 2.10, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. This is the thing that, and, and interestingly, James is the head of this council that Paul and Peter and Barnabas are just speaking to in Acts chapter 16, the council at Jerusalem. He is heading that council, the chief elder, if you like. And, and so after that encounter at some stage he writes this message to the church that if you want to keep the law but you offend in one point you've broken the entirety of the law. Now Ray Comfort uses a great illustration about a chain and that if you you know if you're holding on to a chain with ten links and one of those links breaks 
what's going to happen to you? You're going to fall because the chain has broken. It doesn't matter where it breaks, but at any point that chain breaks, you're falling. And this is why God's moral code is very important in the work of evangelism, that we can point out to people that, yes, you have sinned. At some point you've lied or stolen or looked with lust or whatever it might be, and so you've broken the chain of God's law and you're free-falling into eternity. And so if people want to push the idea and the theology of legalism, they need to understand that to keep the law requires keeping the whole law. It requires that. And that is why Peter calls it a yoke, because the Jewish people had not been able to keep that law, apart from one Jewish man, the God-man Jesus. Well... Verse 13 says, after they were silent, James, we just heard from him in James chapter 2, James answered, saying, Men, brothers, listen to me. Even as Simon has declared how God at the first visited the nations to take out of them a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree to this as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. And I will build again its ruins and I will set it up so those men who are left might seek after the Lord and all the nations on whom my name has been called, says the Lord, who does all these things. All his works are known to God from eternity. Therefore, my judgment is that we do not trouble those who have turned to God from among the nations, but that we write to them that they should abstain from pollutions of idols and, uh, and from fornication or immorality and from things strangled and from blood. From, uh, for Moses, from ages past, has, these, has those in every city proclaiming him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath, then, then pleased it the apostles and elders uh, with the whole church to send those men to their, uh, of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief among the brethren. So, some would say, well, hang on, they just put some laws on them, you know, on the Gentiles. We do not trouble those who have turned to God from among the nations, and you can summarize these four rules into one heading, because these four rules all surround idolatry from among the nations, but that we write to them that they should abstain from idolatry. These things, pollutions of idols, the fornication, we know that in this region of Antioch and Ephesus and the worship of Diana involved a large amount of sexual immorality. From things strangled, and from blood, these were offerings made uh, made up to or given up to false forms of worship. This wasn't just surrounding issues of Levitical law being placed on the Gentiles. This was about getting the Gentiles to be clear about making one step further away from their own idolatry. 
Move away from that stuff. This is all we, this is the only thing we want to put on them. As Gentile people involved in these various forms of pagan practices, through the gospel they've come to know that it's wrong to worship Diana. But listen, step away from these things too. We saw that in Macau, dealing with the the Chinese converts in and among the church, that there were festivals each year that were steeped in ancient forms of worship. And they even call it ancestral worship. And they have a thing called Baisan, and at Baisan, they, each year they go to the, the, sem- the graveside of their, their grandmother and grandfather and great-grandmother and grandfather and these things, and they put down a little fruit offering, and they burn a little offering of, of money, uh, fake money. You know, the Chinese, they never make a bad deal when it comes to money. So they, they use fake money because it's a lot cheaper, and they... They burn that stuff and they burn some effigies of things like cars and and stuff like that so that they'll have riches transported to them in the spiritual realm. And then they light some incense and they bow in worship, holding the incense in this particular way, bow in worship, waving that incense out and saying some historical, ancient, ancestral sayings that that they say it's a form of ancestral worship. And they, they call it that. We're going to worship our ancestors. Well, you know, we didn't have to bring that up with our converts. They brought it up with us. They said, oh, you know, this terrible thing. Oh, I hate, I hate this. You know, now that I'm a Christian, I feel really conflicted about this. And so we're like, praise God. Because the Spirit of God is moving in their hearts. And so it became a real struggle because within the Chinese culture, you have to respect your elders and when they tell you to do things, you become very disrespectful when you don't do it and you lose face. And to lose face in the Chinese community is a very potent thing. It's, it's, it's very powerful, both positive and negative, to lose face in a community. And so we had to pray that God would give them the strength to make right decisions, but we taught them and showed them in Scripture that this kind of practice was wrong. This kind of worshipful practice was wrong. But we had to leave it with them to make these decisions. And we so praised God as they come to us and they would say, oh, my family, you know, they were really upset. But after we sat and talked about it, God really gave us favor when we explained that we can't do this. You know, time and time again, we heard this from them, that God had given them favor. Sometimes there were real disputes in the families and they stood strong. And so... This is the kind of thing that James is sending back in this letter to the church, which they took back and they took extra people with them to attest to what had happened at this council so that there would be more than, with, more than the, just Paul and Barnabas going along and, and explaining to them, this is what we believe the Lord has decreed to the church. So uh, I'm, I'm going to finish off there, but, you know, the liberty of salvation by grace through faith is something that you and I need to hold on to and hold on to earnestly and jealously. And I think we have been remiss and I've been remiss in the church in some ways over our church leadership and eldership um, issue and it's a, it's a problem 
that uh, that we uh, fully intended to resolve within a short period of time and get back to you on that because even just a simple reading of passages like this in Acts show us that there is a real need to have a safety blanket measure for the church that there are areas where people can go to and uh, you know I've been remiss in that area and just haven't haven't dealt with it properly um, so you know we're going to close those matters off so that they are dealt with properly in the congregation um, so praise the Lord and and I want to encourage you to Take some time, read through that encounter in, in uh, Acts chapter six, no, 15. Fantastic record that is given to us by Luke who recorded the book of Acts. It is a fantastic record and it's very encouraging to us because you can see human failings within these passages, you know, and it's not all just a, a bed of roses. The Christian church wasn't just all, you know, um, you know, just just sweetness, angels floating on clouds, you know, little cherubs. It wasn't all that. The Christian church was very much a battleground. There were issues and contentions and difficulties and 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 relationship stresses that took place, and the church worked through all of these things to the glory of God. Amen. Praise the Lord. So I'd encourage you to take a read through and, and um, take a good study of Ephesians 2 as well, especially verses 8 through 10. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you so much for the fellowship that we've had uh, already this morning and, and for each one of these beloved saints Lord, we praise you and we thank you. Thank you for just the wonderful, wonderful time of singing and worship we had uh, here this morning, singing such uh, songs that so glorify your name, Lord. We praise you for that. We ask you to bless our fellowship as we head off today, uh, Lord, and, and just continue to guide us and direct us into the future. In Christ's mighty name. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.